on occasion, folk will, will ask me, you know, you've met them for the first time, they find out I'm a pastor, and trying to make small talk, I guess, but, uh, you know, what's your church all about? What, 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 do, you, what do you all believe? What, 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 where are you guys going? It's fairly easy for us because it's a Christian church. We believe that Christ is the head of this church. He's the one who determines where we're going. We don't. And we don't figure it out by, you know, getting some of the folk in the back room and having a Christian seance kind of thing and waiting for some premonition of what we're supposed to do. His word tells us. He's already told us what we're supposed to do. Matthew 28. This is going to all the world and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Now, we take this seriously, this whole going to all the nations deal. As a church, we have homes in Kenya and in Thailand that support uh, 60, I think, children, kids who are high-risk kids for, for being sold into the sex slavery industry. And we've rescued them in that sense, taking them there where they live seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, where, where the, we will support them, uh, introduce, have them be introduced to Christ, schooling all the way up through college and pushed back out into their communities as uh, disciples. We are part of a denomination. We're in over 80 different countries in this world. 70 of them have over 700 U.S. workers who are caring for the sick, who are introducing the spiritually disenfranchised uh, to Jesus. We have multiple mission trips that we do. We've just had a group, uh, some of them coming back from the DR, been there, uh, some of our people, over, over a month. Uh, Britt, I don't know if you noticed, she's not here. Britt is uh, Honduras. Uh, medical missions. We have, we have mission trips going to the whole world. We, we recognize this. We want to obey. But we also recognize that we've been placed, the, the corner of the world, I guess, that God has carved out for us specifically is Erie, Pennsylvania. And so we kind of rewrote this a little bit with our mission field in mind. And we say that, that our goal is to transform Erie by introducing people to a transformational relationship with, with Jesus. Uh, a, a two words. If you're going to put this whole thing in two words, you could do it. Make disciples. That's what he told us to do. Go make disciples. Question is, though, what exactly does a disciple look like? That's what this whole series was trying to unpack. Do we just want folk to come to church or be better people or be a better citizen? And all those things might be nice. That's not what we're looking at, though. Uh, the scripture is clear on what a disciple looks like. First, they come into a relationship with Jesus, recognize that he died on the cross in their stead. And then as we follow the followers in the New Testament, we see that there were four, at least four things about them. They were people who learned from Jesus. Jesus was a rabbi. That means he was their teacher. So they, they wanted to learn what he had for them, his view of life, his understanding of life. Disciples are those who learn from Jesus. They're committed. They want to know what he says. They also are people who live for Jesus. If you followed these followers through the Gospels and Acts, I don't know if I can use this word in church. I'm going to use it in church all the same, though. Is uh, You notice that their spirituality kind of evolved. You know, it's really fascinating. This is not like other religions where it's just do a bunch of things and keep doing them and maybe do them better. If you look at these folk who are following Jesus, 
internally. They're like a rose opening up. They're just growing immensely. They're being transformed inside. A disciple is one who lives for Jesus. Mike talked about that last week. If you weren't here, you need to get the CD or listen online. It's fantastic. A disciple also is one who loves as Jesus. Because Jesus said, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's, it's, it's community. And then fourth L, in our L4, is that disciples are those who lead others to Jesus. Lead others. You know, this is a hard one, I think. Maybe in some instances, maybe a most difficult. And part of the reason what makes it so hard is we know the people we're trying to reach, and they sometimes can be scary people. You know, I remember I was in junior high, Laramie Junior High, just outside of Chicago, uh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. I had a guy in my homeroom, sixth and seventh grade anyway. His name was Alan. Uh, Alan was somebody that, uh, if we were, my friends and I, my church friends and I were to vote, he would be voted on as the most unlikely candidate to follow Jesus. I mean, Alan, I, I remember that he always had black cowboy boots, he had dark jeans, he had a black hard rock t-shirt of some sort, and then he would always wear this black leather jacket. This is junior high, but I don't know if I ever remember Alan coming to school where he wasn't drunk or high or hungover. In junior high, he was often covered with bruises, probably because of all the fights he got into. He was suspended on a regular basis. Alan was just a tough kid. He was, he was a scary kid in this. He was unpredictable. He didn't care what happened to him. So he'd be walking down the hallway, and if he sees an upperclassman, someone twice his size, He'd drop his books and just haul off on this guy. He would do that with girls. He did that with a teacher. He was just, he was just, he just didn't care what happened to him. So, didn't love Alan. Kind of loathed Alan. Stay away from Alan because it's dangerous. Sometimes the people were supposed to evangelize. Dangerous people. Scary people. You know, Jesus in Mark chapter 2, same sort of thing is going on. Jesus hadn't picked his whole team yet, right? So he's got a few of the guys. But they're going down the road and they come across somebody, kind of like Alan, that all of his guys would look at and say, you know, if we have to vote, who's most unlikely to follow Jesus? This is, this is the guy. And if you, turn with me. Mark chapter 2. We'll, we'll read of that. Mark 2. Beginning in verse 13. It says, he went out again beside the sea. All the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, also known as Matthew often, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, uh, uh, Jesus just left Capernaum, so he's, he's, he's probably busy road here that this tax booth is set up on. Most probably this is the key thoroughfare that went all the way down to Egypt, And up and around the Mediterranean, through Asia Minor, if there was a land bridge, it would take you all the way to Rome. This was the main road, very, very busy road, perfect for a toll booth. And Matthew, tax gatherer, perfect place to set up a toll booth. Where anybody who comes through, you you, you tax them and, oh, for that wagon, it's going to be a little bit more. And you got how many in your party? Okay, it's this much more. And that that, that flock of sheep coming through, it's going to cost you this. Matthew would would have been there with a couple of uh, uh, bodyguards, 
with some Roman guards just to make sure in case anybody questioned Matthew's calculation. Very uh, uh, cushy job. And as Jesus and his disciples would have been approaching Matthew, Levi, he would have been sitting there in his probably his finest silks and lots of jewelry, you know, something right off the cover of, you know, some Palestinian GQ magazine. Matthew was, was doing well. But his Jesus disciples at that point knew that Matthew's fancy clothes and Matthew's jewelry and Matthew's, no doubt, toys and fancy house were bought by the blood and the sweat of Hebrew men and women and children who didn't even have enough to eat. And so their, their blood boiled when they saw Matthew. Uh, they, 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 they knew that Matthew was Jewish blood, but Matthew had turncoat. He was now working for the Romans, helping the Romans oppress the Jews. And so they, it was, they hated. If there was anybody that would be more opposite politically of of Jesus and his disciples, it was Matthew. Whole different. Matthew was was religiously unclean. He didn't care about religion. Matthew was somebody who was morally unclean. To be a tax gatherer means you lie, you cheat, you you steal, you extort, you strong arm people. You don't care about the the poor, the disenfranchised. You take their money as well. Matthew was like in the Palestinian mafia. He was not a nice man. He, he, was, he was somebody that you would avoid. When you saw him coming, you knew he was going to get some of your money. He, he, was, he, was, he was someone you would avoid. So it's amazing. It's got to be amazing to these few disciples that are with Jesus that he walks up to Matthew. And he asks. See, see, Jesus sees something in Matthew that his other disciples here don't see. Jesus can see into his heart. And maybe Jesus sees a crack in that, that heart of stone. And so Jesus looks around at all of Matthew's utensils and says, Matthew, this, this is not, follow me. I'm choosing you, Matthew. Will you, will you choose me? Follow me. And so the greatest miracle in the story is Matthew gets up, leaves his goal, leaves the, the guards, leaves everything, and walks away to follow Jesus. Now, uh, John R.W. Stott says that's not the emphasis, though, of this text. That, that this text is not about Matthew's conversion. No, no, no. It's about his mission. It's about what happens next. And so the very next verse, it says, As he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. In other words, the first thing that Matthew does... After he comes to know Christ, he's introduced to Jesus, he starts to follow Jesus. The very first thing he does is he throws this party for all of his friends. And the only friends he has are tax gatherer type friends. I mean, this is like a scene out of The Godfather, right? These are, these are, are uh, uh, prostitutes are there and adulterers are there and people with very colorful language are there and people who are talking about all their materialistic gain are there and people who are, are talking about how they've ripped off someone else are there and, and con artists are there. And these are Matthew's friends. And, and I think this is hilarious. Sitting in the midst of all this, you've got Jesus and a few of his disciples who are kind of going, how in the world did I get that? And so there, Matthew though knows this lifestyle of his friends. I mean, he very recently, he lived it. And he knows the futility. And he knows that all this stuff that was supposed to satisfy, that he chased and he got, it's, it's 
not, it's, there's no satisfaction there. And, and, and he, he knows the, the superficiality and how you always have to be watching your back because no honor among thieves. And he knows Jesus. And he knows what Jesus, Jesus gives you more than all the shekels in Palestine can give you. And he, he knows that Jesus really is the real deal. He loves, he loves tax gatherers and he's, he's hoping that his friends might meet Jesus like he did. And that their lives would be shifted. Their lives would be changed. The first thing Matthew does, you notice this, was he, he burdened for his friends. He organizes his how his friends might meet Jesus. I know this is all over the place in, in, in the New Testament. I mean, everywhere. John chapter 1. You, you've got uh, Andrew. Uh, one, this is one of Jesus' first disciples. One of, of the two who heard John uh, speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon. That's going to be Peter, right? And said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. You know, humanly speaking, if it wasn't for Andrew introducing Jesus to Peter, there'd be no Peter. We would have no Peter. We would not know anything about, about, about Peter. The first thing he does, it says, I've got to introduce Jesus to my, my brother. Just down the chapter, you see the same thing happens again. Philip, so the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. He introduced himself to Philip. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom uh, Moses in the law, also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Now, Nathaniel's question is a legitimate question. He says, well, hang on. The Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem, city of David, not Nazareth, for crying out loud. What does Nazareth have? How does this fit? And perhaps Philip doesn't know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Not, not yet. He just met Jesus himself. He's, you know, know. So he says... I don't know, it's a good question. So often we don't want to introduce anyone else to Jesus because we're afraid they may ask us a question we're not going to know how to handle. And it's, I don't know, that's a good question. I just want you to meet him. Just, just yeah, it's a good question, but just, just meet him. You, you find, not far from this, the Apostle Paul, when he comes to know Christ, remember, he just came to know Christ in, in, in Acts chapter 9, and look what it says. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. Immediately. It's the first thing that happens in John chapter 4. Remember, John just, Jesus introduces himself to a, a woman, Samaritan woman. And Jesus says, I know you're talking about the Messiah. That's, that's me. Well, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, this is the same day she met Jesus, come. See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out the town and they were coming to him. Again, this is over and over and over, all over scripture. Because if you remember, when Jesus first called his disciples, he said, follow me and I will bring you to heaven one day. No, I mean, that was going to happen, but that's not. Follow me and uh, I will make your life better. And I will relieve you of guilt. And I will uh, give you freedom. And, and I will help you understand the Holy Spirit. And I will give you victory over sin. Now those things are true. 
But that's, that's not what Jesus, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And I'm going to give you a brand new profession, a vocation, obsession right here on this earth right now. Real important. First important thing to Jesus. Mark 5, Jesus comes across this demoniac. This guy has got everything going. You think you're having a bad day? Read Mark 5. This is a, everything's going bad for this guy, right? But he meets Jesus. And Jesus <laughs> introduces himself to this guy. Uh, guy's life gets back together in a short time. Jesus starts to leave. And it says, as he was getting into the boat, Jesus, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is Jesus' goal for his disciples, that, that we tell others, that we lead people to him. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. And if you, you look back in Mark, the, 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 the Levi story, it, Jesus is going to make it real clear to them here too. In verse 16, it says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Your, your, your Messiah, your Jesus is hanging out with the Palestinian mafia. What's he doing partying with these guys for? What is he all about? And if you, you notice something, that these Pharisees who were so concerned about spiritual righteousness had nothing to do with leading people uh, to, to faith. Nothing. Now they were, they were really interested in church things, but they had nothing to do with leading other people to eternal life. If we have a brand of Christianity that is all about doing good things, religious things, but has nothing to do with leading other people to Christ, we just got to know we don't have Jesus' brand of Christianity. That's kind of an important thing for us to know. And so Jesus, what he's going to do here, I think this is why he's got this whole thing set up. It's for his disciples. He's teaching them a lesson. Jesus is our master. Everything that comes into our life on one level, Jesus is there. it's there for Jesus to teach us. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He said, you Pharisee folk, you don't get it. He's saying, disciples of mine, you need to understand this about me. You're following me, you need to know. I came for the sick. I came for the Palestinian mafioso type people. Now, you, you need to know that the Pharisees were just as sick as, as the tax gatherers. Problem is, they didn't think they were. And so Jesus is, is calling the folk who are, who are broken, they, they, realize, they realize they are. I'm going to say, disciples lead other people to Jesus. That's what Jesus was all about. It's what he wants for us. Example, example, example. I got it, I got it, I got it. But why is it so hard? Scares the bejeebers out of me. I don't have the gift. I tried maybe a couple times. I got tongue-tied and people are going to laugh and people are going to make fun of and I'm just not sure and I can't do it right and by the time I get done, they're going to be more confused than when they start it. How can I embolden myself? What can I do to live out what I'm supposed to be? I think that's a key question for us. Because they say that after someone becomes a believer, give them two years and then they will have no more non-believer friends. 
They become so cloistered in with the community. Community is good, it's important. But everyone on the outside kind of goes away. And if you grew up in the church, you're, 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 you're second generation Christian like, like myself. You grew up in the church all the more. And so we have to intentionally work to embolden ourselves or see ourselves emboldened. So how can we do this? I think four things we can remember. If we can keep these things in our head, it will, it will, it will embolden us. First of all is to remember that, that sharing our faith is the right thing. It, it's the right thing. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament, fascinating story. You, you remember the, the Israel split, right? They had a civil war. South had their capital. Their Washington, D.C. was Jerusalem. The North, their capital, their Washington, D.C. was, was Samaria. Well, the, the, the Syrians were coming on against Samaria. They had sieged it, which means they had their armies all around the city. Now, the city, of course, had big old walls. You couldn't break in real easy. You got close. You got shot by arrows. That didn't work. So siege warfare, typically, they would set up a third of a mile, quarter of a mile, half a mile back, and they would just wait. They let no supplies in. And sooner or later, the folk inside, they're going to have famine, they're going to run out of water, there's going to be plague, and they're going to come out and surrender. And so, siege warfare, that's what they were doing. So they were set up for some time. And what's going on in Samaria, uh, terrible famine. Scripture says they're eating each other. It's, it's a bad, bad situation. Now, there are four lepers, though, who aren't in the city, because lepers had a contagious disease, they're really not allowed in, but they're like pushed up against the wall, and so they can't really get in, and there's famine in anyway, and they're staring at the Syrian army out there, and they're, you know, they're in a tough spot. And Second Kings 7, I don't have this on the screen, so just listen though, verse 3. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we'll die there, and if we sit here, we're also going to die. So now come, let's go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we'll live. And if they kill us, we were going to die anyway. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Assyrians, or the Syrians, hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and they went and hid them. You can, you, these lepers are now, they're having a blast, right? I mean, they're finding these 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 fancy tents, the commander's tents, you know, and they're walking in and they're sitting on these pushy pillows and they're just going to eat and stuff. And they're pulling out the clothes and trying it on for each other. They're just having a, they have never lived like this, right? They're going home and hiding it. But after a while, they, they stop. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. And they're thinking of all the people back in the city who are starving to death. The kids, they're starving to death. And here they are. This were not two or three tents. They surrounded the entire city of Samaria. Thousands of tents. Tons of food. And they're hoarding it to themselves. And they said, we're not doing right to let these folk perish while we're sitting on it. Now, you see the analogy, right? 
we're sitting on spiritual riches, on forgiveness, on hope in Christ, on heaven one day, on the power of, of, of the Spirit, on, on the promises of His Word. We're sitting on that. It's good and we're enjoying it. It's, fun. it's great. It's good. When there's so many else who don't have it, and to not share it, they would say, we are not doing right. I mean, can, can you imagine if, if you have got cancer, or someone you love has got cancer, and somebody has a, has a cure? And it's, it's, it's not expensive, and it's plentiful, it's not a problem, but you're going through this, and your family's going through it, and so you're, you're looking for the cure, but they just decide they're not going to share it. When you wonder how hard-hearted a person would be to not share that which would be good news. It wouldn't be right for them to keep it to themselves. The reason why we, we, we share our faith is because it's the right thing to do. Will it be comfortable always? Of course not. Will everyone applaud us when we... No, no. Will we always walk around, come out of the thing looking like a, a gem or, or gold? No, we, we won't. We don't do it for those reasons though. We do it because it's the right thing to do. There's another reason we, we share our faith though. And that's because it's the right thing for us. Now, this is, this is significant, I think. 1 Corinthians 9. Let's listen to the Apostle Paul. He says, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for, for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to them if I do not preach the gospel. Now, you would think that that's what it should say. If I don't share the good news, woe to them. I mean, they, they, they don't hear it. They're in all kinds of trouble. He doesn't say that, though, does he? Woe to me. If I don't share it. And I'm not certain that what he's saying is, I'm going to get lots of trouble if I don't do this. As much as he's saying, this is who I am. It's, it's what I'm wired to be. I don't have it on the screen, but Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah was trying to share his faith. No one's responding well to him. People were responding, but not well. And so he, he, he decides, I'm going to shut down. First, forget this. It's too hard. And then in chapter 20, verse 9, he says this. He says, if I say I will speak no more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire. Shut up in my bones. I, I, and I cannot endure it. I am weary of holding it in. He says, I am born to. I am made to share. And when I don't, it destroys me. This is Philemon 6. What a fascinating text. Philemon 6. Paul's praying. He's talking to Philemon. And he says, I pray that you will be um, active in sharing your faith. So that, this is why, you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Now, by sharing your faith here in this text, Paul means more than just verbalizing your faith. But he certainly doesn't mean less than that. And So do you see what he's saying? Unless we share our faith, we will not come to a full understanding. So, am I reading this right? And it's through sharing our faith that we, we grow spiritually, that we are able to see and understand life through his eyes, that we are a actually able to be what we were supposed to be. I was a youth pastor years and years and years ago um, on a Kickapoo River in uh, northern Wisconsin. Beautiful, beautiful river. 
But at, at its widest place, I think the river was about as wide as this, as this platform. It wasn't very, very wide, and it just curved. On either side of the river, almost the whole way, you had bluffs and you had beautiful forests. And it was just gorgeous. And so every time you took a turn in the river, it was just new sights. It's just beautiful. Well, this, this uh, student and myself were canoeing, and we took a turn. And um, this tree had fallen, I don't know how long back, several years back, though. There was no more leaves on it. But it had fallen over, over the uh, river, uh, stopped, you know, kind of locked in about two feet from the river, right? Well, right on the very end of the tree was perched a bald eagle. It was a matured eagle. And so we turn and we see this eagle about the same time. And it's probably from where I'm at now to middle of the pews here. And we just kind of stop and stare at him. Well, he's staring at us. I mean, he, 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 I think he heard us coming. He's he, he, he stared at us. And we just kind of stop. I'd never seen one up close like this before. Well, the current of the river keeps pulling our canoe closer and closer to this thing. And it got between where I'm at and this very first pew. And he was, and these things are big. I didn't know how big they were. But you could see his, his, his beak so sharp and his talons clamped on there. It was so, and we're looking at this thing going, oh, I'm thinking we got to back up. We're going to get too close. You know, can he carry me off? I mean, all this stuff. And I think we got too close to him. For his, his comfort as well, because he spread out his wings. And he's got six-foot wings, man. I mean, so it's just, I mean, this was amazing. And then he took off. Well, he doesn't just go straight up in the air, right? With this 15-pound eagle, he kind of drops a little. To, well, he didn't have a whole lot of room to drop. So he came right over our canoe. Guy in the front jumping out. I'm like, ah, I'm getting down real quick. Watch this. I was just marveled at how glorious this thing was. Can you imagine seeing an eagle in a chicken yard, you know? And he's just walking around with the other chickens. And he's using his powerful talents to like dig up the dirt. For whatever reason, the chickens are digging up dirt. I don't know, looking for worms or whatever they're looking for. I don't know. And he's just kind of pecking. And keep in mind that a chicken weighs about two pounds. Eagle weighs up to 15 pounds. He's like seven times larger than these stupid chickens. If you saw this, you would probably say, I think the eagle has missed his calling, right? He, 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 he kind of, he's got an identity crisis going on. And you would think, you know what? He could know what it means to soar. And he could know what it means to fly and, and the freedom of flight and, and to feel the wind underneath his massive wings and to, to his eyes are made to see from, from that kind of a distance. And oh, the, the perspective that he might have that's so different because he's actually living out his identity. For us, same thing. It, it's when we live out our identity in Christ, when we, which, is, which is to be one who leads others to him, which is to have the heart of Jesus concerned for and leading others to him, will we'll soar. We will understand the Holy Spirit in ways we haven't before. We will see from a vantage point, God's vantage point, incredible things that I think sometimes in life we don't see because we're just walking around. We're not doing that which he's called us to do. We share our faith because it's the right thing to do. Because it's the right thing for us to do. It's the way he has chosen to disciple us. There's a third reason, though, why we share our faith. We share our faith because he is with us. Because he is with us. Sometimes we think I'm alone in this venture. I don't know. Matthew 28. 
that go therefore, right? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, King James says, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now let me make this real clear. Hebrews 13.5 and Deuteronomy 31.6, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He will never leave you whether you share your faith or not. He's not going to leave you. He's there. He's with you. He will always be with you. It's a promise he's made. The the context, both places, is the, the love and the faithfulness of God. But here... There was an era, what, what, what we would say is, 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 but when we share our faith, we will receive a, a special anointing of his presence. Where, where there is an understanding of his presence that you can only achieve when you share his faith, you share, share your faith. And the reason why he's going with, he doesn't go to observe. He goes to be a part of. Remember, this is his heart. This is what he does. He's going to be a part of this. In Acts, fascinating. Chapter 2, these guys are sharing their faith. They're sharing their faith. They're working hard. They're really working hard. And people are responding. They're introducing people to Jesus, and people are responding. And then you get this, very last verse in in Acts 2. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. Initially, you want to say, "Well, well, hang on, hang on, God, hang on. I mean, you're God and all. But you probably shouldn't claim credit for something somebody else has done. These guys have worked hard and people are coming to know you because these people have worked hard to introduce them to Jesus. But the text says, well, no, 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 you're missing something. God added to that number. God was involved in that somehow. In Acts 13, it's an amazing verse. The, gent- the, the disciples had been teaching, preaching, introducing the Jewish people to Christ, but now they start introducing Gentile people to Christ. Well, the Gentiles love this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. We can be a part of this as well. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now that may shake up some theology stuff. Or, and that may go, whoa, I don't, wait a minute, who... Who's going to appoint them to eternal life? Well, God appoints them to eternal life. And you go, I do, I do, you're struggling a little bit. Now, hang on that struggle. That's not a bad struggle. We're not going to answer that one right now. But I think this, all of us would agree that whatever else this means, it means that God is in the middle of these people coming to know him. They're not, it's not about, do I have the great argument? Am I a better debater than the other folk? Is, is it all about my skill and my ability to, to turn the tables and to, to come up with a great illustration to fix it? No. No. He's there. And he's not there as, as an observer. If this is a tough verse for you, 2 Corinthians 6. Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, if I share it with people and they don't respond, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, get this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, he's the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says that, that, that he's opening the, the, pulling back the curtain a little bit here, and he's allowing us to see evangelism 
from heaven's perspective. And what he's doing is he's saying, man, listen, when you enter into sharing your faith, you just need to know it's not you against this other person. Oh, no, no, you, you've just entered into a cosmic battle way beyond what you know. Way beyond what you know. And, and God, who spoke into darkness and said, let there be light, and there was light, he's the one who's spoken to our hearts. And so let there be, be, be light. We need to know we are not in this alone. It's not just me and my abilities. No, 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 no. You might say, well, I'm, I'm not a good fisherman. Jesus said, go fish for men. I'm, I'm not a good fisherman. You probably are not. But I know for me, when I learned to fish regularly, real fish, I didn't do it through a book. I didn't get zapped with the gift of fishermanness. I went out with my dad. And I spent hours in the boat with my dad or along the bank with my dad. And, and, and he taught me what this is what, when the weather is what it is. This is how you do it when you're trying to catch a certain fish. This is the bait you use or the jigs you use or whether you go with a bobber or fish on bottom or troll. And, and after being with him and doing this over and over and over again, I learned something about it. If you're, if you're waiting to become a good fisherman before you fish, you're just never going to be a good fisherman. But when you go out to fish for men, you've got to know Jesus is in the boat with you. And he will put the worm on your hook. And he is there committed to making you a fisherman. You just have to follow him in that, in that regard. Um, Carrie Livgring um, grew up in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, Livgren said that, that when he uh, was a little boy, his grandma died. He was really shook him up. He started saying, I, I wonder what life is about. He said as he grew, that quest deepened. He knew some Christians who were hypocrites, so he was sure it wasn't Christianity. But, but he was determined in his life by the end of his high school days that his life was going to be about two things. Number one, discovering what the truth was. I was going to know what the truth was. He was committed to that. Number two thing is he was going to be a famous rock and roll guitarist. That was his plan. Well, you know, the goofy thing is that the dream number two came true before dream number one even. I mean, he, was, he started a group, and because he was from Topeka, he named his group Kansas. And when I was a kid, 70s, uh, Kansas was a very popular group. They, they really hit their, their pinnacle of, of fame probably in the, the late 70s, early 80s. And, and Carrie Libgren is the key uh, writer for Kansas, would write, combine the two basically, his quest for truth and their music. And so often their music reflected his quest for truth. And so he wrote a song at one, one time that was actually their most popular song, Dust in the Wind. I don't know if you've heard this song before. But it's a fascinating song. You think, you know, rock band. They've acoustic guitars, violins, cellos, beautiful, beautiful, haunting melody. And the words he puts to this is, is like the same old song, you know, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles, though we fail to see that we're just dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. The other verses, same sort of thing. That that's all we are, get everything else out of your head. We are just dust in the wind. With that haunting melody going on and those words, you know what, this song connected with a generation that was searching as Carrie Livgren was searching. Well, 
they're real big. Kansas is real big. They're, they're packing out arenas in the North America, Japan. They're on tour one time. And uh, they brought in a, a uh, they were the headliner band, but they brought in a, a warm-up band, a guy that warm, group that would warm up the, the audience before they came out. And it, he's lived very vocal in his spirituality and his understanding of reality. Uh, but as he would share, he noticed that the key singer-writer for this warm-up band was not saying a whole lot. So Livgren pushed on him a little bit. Well, this guy obviously doesn't want to rock the boat. You get to, you know, warm up band for Kansas. I mean, you get your whole band in front of the, the headlights and everything. This is wonderful. You don't want to rake, you know, shake that too hard. But he, he challenged Livgren back with the claims of Christ. And Livgren was like an expert on every world religion. He tried them all. But, but he kept coming to this guy and this guy kept responding in ways that kind of, they, they, they rung in his heart. So he would get on, Team Kansas was getting on their jet to go, and he gave up his seat and got on the, the tour bus for the warm-up band, went to the very back where this guy was, and spent several hours with this guy just introducing him to Jesus. And before Livren got off the bus, he had met Christ. I don't know if you followed the group at all, but, but suddenly Kansas' lyrics were shifting and changing. And not real... Uh, some of you might sing in church, but if you were a believer, you, you listen to these things, you said, I know what's going on here. And, and suddenly, this whole, whole disposition to change. Now, he's still today, he's a hardcore rocker, but his quest for truth is, is over. I mean, he's still walking with Christ, you know, 30-something years later. Now, this guy that introduced him to Jesus, I mean, Livgren would have been like Alan, the last person anyone would think would be a disciple. He just told the whole world that all we are are dust in the wind, right? Uh, but yet, God had been working in his heart. He's been on a, a decade search for truth. And he was ripe at the time when this man shared with him. We just need to know when we share, it's not just us. It's not as if God doesn't love this person more than we do and has been working perhaps in his heart, in his soul to bring about the life that he desires. There's, we do it, we share our faith because it's the right thing to do, because it's right for us, because he's with us, we're not alone in this thing. But then fourth, we, we share our faith because it's right for them. Right? I mean, they, they, that's what, what, what they need. If you are a parent and you have a kid far from Christ, no one knows the pain that you endure daily other than yourself and other parents who are in that same group. You pray for them regularly. You would pay any price, right? To, to, if, any price if they would just come to walk with Christ. You, would pray, you, you care so much. You bur- burn so deeply. You know, I think every lost person in this world needs somebody who cares for them that way. And I think they do. I think his name is Jesus. I think that's why he says to us, you'll reflect me most when your heart breaks for them as mine does. I I was, uh, after my freshman year of Moody, I went back to my my, my church, uh, suburbs of Chicago. Sunday night service. uh, I'll I'll never forget this picture. Sunday evening service. In walks this guy. He's got a beautiful uh, girlfriend. I, I know the girl and I know her family. She's a solid believer. Just very solid believer. But I don't know who this guy is. But he's got a three-piece suit on. And he's, uh, we start to talk. And I, I 
learn that this guy is in college to go into ministry? And it starts dawning on me who this is. And I say, Alan, Alan, what happened? And he shares with me how somebody, first how he grew up, alcoholic dad is all he lived with. He was beat on a regular basis, tried to take his life multiple times. But then somebody shared with him how much Christ loved him. And he said, everything just, just clicked for me. This is, how come no one shared with this, with this me sooner? Well, I'm, of course, I'm feeling like an idiot. Because I wish I had been the one to lead Alan uh, to Christ. You say, well, okay, okay, what, what, it's good, but I don't even know how to start. Here's something that every one of us can do. Every one of us can do this. I want to give you a prayer challenge. Prayer challenge is this. For 2017, you pick three people. Three people, uh, not necessarily in your family, but if, if that's where they are, okay, but three people who don't know Christ, and, and you pray earnestly, sincerely, desperately for them. We're not talking like, oh yeah, pray for John and Tom and Mary, would you, would you help them know you, amen. But to pray sincerely, desperately, urgently for them. It's gotta, the prayer's got to end with this. It's got it's to end with this. And God, if you want to use me, I don't know what to do, but, but, but I'm open. Would you, would you lead me? Now we've got... I don't know, 1,400 people, I think, who claim FAC is their home church. But let's just say 1,000. Let's be conservative. If 1,000 of us prayed for three people for this whole year, earnestly, desperately, um, sincerely, we've got 3,000 people in the Erie area that are being prayed for on that level. Can you imagine what, what might God do? If there is a God, and if he listens to prayer, what might he do? I, I, I suggest we find out. And so I want to encourage you to take the prayer challenge that, that you're going to lock in on three people. And your prayer is going to be sincerely, desperately, urgently, not once every two months, but on a regular basis. Please plead for their soul, for who they are, that, that God would enlighten them, that God would bring people their way, that somehow he would, he would bring them into his kingdom. Pray desperately for them. And you've got to end your prayer in God. If you want to use me, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm, 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 I'll, I'll give it a shot. I can't imagine what God might do with, with a prayer like that. Oh, if we could be about that as a church. Let me read a, a poem. I, I've used this so years ago, but it's, it's very important uh, to me. He says, I stay near the door. I neither go too far in. Nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It's the door through which men walk when they find God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where the door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stay near the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing any man can do is to take hold of one of those blind groping hands and put it on the latch. The latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. 
Men die outside that door as starving beggars die on cold nights and cruel cities in the dead of winter, die for want of what is within their grasp. They live on the other side of it, live because they haven't found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. So I stay near the door. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in, go down to the cavernous cellars and way up into the spacious attics in a vast roomy house, this house where God is. Go into the deepest of hidden casements of withdrawal, of silence, of sainthood. Some must inhabit those inner rooms and know the depths and heights of God and call outside to the rest of us how wonderful it is. Sometimes I take a deeper look in, sometimes venture a little farther, but my place seems closer to the opening. So I stay near the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have not even found the door. You can go in too deeply and stay in too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place, near enough to God to hear him and know he's there, but not so far from men as to not hear them. And remember, they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them, millions of them. But more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them whose hands I am intended to put on the latch. So I stay by the door and wait for those who seek it. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. So I stay near the door. Would you pray with me?